Well, this is the last Scott Thompson show of 2020. I'm Ted Michaels. I'm hosting for Scott. And we talked a lot about the pandemic and what to look forward to in 2021. And here are some of those conversations. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Ted Michaels filling in for Scott and we are almost finished 2020. Mercifully. Getting ready to... Escort 2020 out the door. Grab it by the scruff of the neck. Off with you. And I'm really thinking that is probably how most people feel about this particular year. However, we've had to, here comes the word, pivot a little bit be in how we do things. And what will the music industry look like in 2021? Glad you asked, and we will defer that question, and among other, a lot of others, too, to our next guest, uh, the host of the Ongoing History of Music, uh, the renowned Alan Cross. Alan, such a pleasure to talk to you. Welcome to CHML, and Happy New Year. Oh, just what? 36 more hours of this <laughs> year? <laughs> Can't wait, huh? Can't wait. You know, no, you know it, please. You know, it's interesting, uh, Alan, when we break down the numbers uh, of 2020, the global live events industry lost, this is staggering, more than $30 billion, including $9.7 billion at the box office. I think people knew that it was big. I don't know if they knew it was that big. It was. It's tremendously bad. We've seen a lot of small promoters go out of business. We've seen in Toronto alone 22 live music venues uh, uh, shut down. Live Nation's profits for the years, revenues for the years have been down 95%, $30 billion U.S. around the world. It has been brutal. And those are just the, the top-line numbers. When you start getting into what musicians have lost, what uh, roadies have lost, what sound and lighting rental companies have lost, it just goes on and on. It has been a disastrous year. Now, let's talk about the Live Nation for a moment, because uh, I uh, was reading an article a while ago that was uh, published. It was a memo from Live Nation to talent agencies, and there's a whole lot in it, but they're basically talking about the way that they, Live Nation, are doing things differently in 2021. For example, in uh, next year, artist guarantees will be adjusted downward 20% from 2020 levels. Usually, you pay 50% up front as a guarantee once you agree to the uh, the gig, and then they need the other 50% the night of their performance. So to go from 50% to 20%, will that be palatable for artists? That w- It won't be. And uh, Live Nation put that out as a trial balloon. They have since retracted that, saying, yeah, we were just thinking about it. No, no, that's, that's not the way it's going to be, because the outcry from agents and the outcry from managers and the outcry from artists was so strong. Like, how dare you strong-arm us? Because, you're, you're, you know, with, between you and AEG Presents, which is the other big promoter, you basically control the live music industry. How dare you try to strong-arm us when you know that we're suffering? You've got all kinds of deep pockets, Live Nation. You can survive this. You can raise money through selling of debt. We can't. And uh, they, there was a tremendous pushback and blowback on that, and that's not going to happen. 
Okay, now I'm wondering, because there were a lot of that, and I make no apologies, Alan, that, you know, I, I grew up as a teen and then started to work in this industry in the 70s. That is my musical genre. I get it. So I was looking forward to seeing uh, Budweiser stage this past year. Steely Dan, I really wanted to see them. I really wanted to see Santana. Of course, so we mentioned off the top, I wanted to see Chicago. If those acts come back... Uh, with the pandemic settling down next year. I'm wondering what that will do, the pandemic. Will it increase ticket prices for those acts, or will the artists kind of be thankful that they can almost get what they can get because they're now back at work? Well, you're missing out on another thing. What is it going to take to get fans back in the arenas, in the the stadiums? Mm -hmm. Uh, There is going to be a tremendous reticence among a number of people, especially those in the older demographics, about going back into large crowds where you might get sick. Now, obviously, we're going to have vaccines, and the vaccines are are going to take hold. But it's going to be well into the summer before most of us have a chance to get a vaccine. So uh, how are you going to attract people who who will have, by that point, gone through a year and a half of being terrified of becoming infected? It's, It's going to be very difficult. Now, if we go to the artists, Let's think about the ages of people like Carlos Santana, yep. the guys in Chicago, Paul yep. McCartney, Ringo Starr. Uh, you know, they're all in their you know late sixties or early seventies or even late seventies. Well, Ringo's eighty. Yep. Uh, you know, are they going to want to go on the road and risk infection? Or if they are, what kind of precautions are they going to demand? There's so much going on in the concert industry. I'll give you another example. Will this mean the end of paper tickets? Will this mean the ena- uh, the, the enactment of uh, facial recognition as a way to get into a show? Uh, will this mean that there will have to be social distancing at concerts so you won't be able to crowd people in? What does it do for general admission? What does it do for small venues? Where are you going to get the security guards to keep everybody separate? What about sanitizing stations? What do you do about the serving staff? There's a lot of questions that still need to be answered yet, and we won't really know where things are going until we see the results of the vaccines. Uh, Glastonbury, for example, they last year, or this earlier this year, said, yeah, we canceled it this year for good reasons, but we'll come back in 2021. They're still looking at the situation in the U.K., thinking, you know, do we want 200,000 people in a muddy, rainy field in, in June of this year? Um, we don't know, and we're going to be watching things very carefully. So... Things are very much up in the air. A lot of shows have been booked. Foo Fighters, for example, who were supposed to play Hamilton in October, yep. uh, are now uh, booked to play the Oshiega Festival in, in, in Quebec. But, you know, that's just a bookmark. A lot of these acts are just, are just you know, doing, you know, making these bookings, booking these dates, uh, just in case things are okay. But there's no guarantee that they will be. And, of course, if they make the booking and things aren't okay, then it gets into the whole thing of the guarantee and force majeure and do we get me money back. And, and, and that's a whole, that force majeure part of the contract, which I know is a standard, but it's funny how we didn't really have to mention that until this year. No, uh, there, was from, there was one festival, I think it was in the, I think it was in the Netherlands, and through a sheer mistake, they ended up with uh, pandemic insurance. Wow. <laughs> so they had sold all these tickets, and then they checked their, their – they had to cancel, and then they checked their policy, and it was like, oh, well, that was happy. <laughs> That's a happy accident. 
So, Alan, uh, from from the music standpoint, from artists, like we mentioned, some of the uh, you know the big names as we talked about Santana and Paul McCartney, and you know I was going to go see Mark Farner in in Buffalo this past year, and that kind of fell apart as well. From a financial standpoint, uh, are they still, if you will, okay financially? Because uh, a lot of them are songwriters and they get their uh, songwriting uh, money that way. But are they generally okay, or are a lot of them maybe hurting more than maybe people think they are? Well, I think they are. If you've been following what's been going on in the music industry, a lot of artists have been selling their music catalogs to these big companies like Concord Publishing and Hypnosis and Primary Wave where they, they, they sell the rights to all their music for big money up front, $70 million, $80 million, $100 million, in the case of Bob Dylan, $450 million. And uh, they're thinking, well, you know what? I was making most of my money on the road. Now I can't that, – that's, that's not guaranteed now. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to sell you all my songs up front and take the money and not have to worry about it. So that's been one thing that we've seen this year is the stampede towards buying – uh, publishing catalogs. And I think we're going to see more of that. Everybody, you know, when Bob Dylan sold, that was a big deal. Like, you're, you're kidding. Bob Dylan sold Blowing in the Wind. He sold Like a Rolling Stone. He, he sold Subterranean Homesick Blues. Yeah, he did. And, and now we're, we're probably looking at artists like, well, just about everybody. I mean, you're probably looking at the Eagles doing more or less the same thing. Uh, Stevie Nicks did it outside of Fleetwood Mac, but then there's the rest of Fleetwood Mac that might, might want to solve their publishing. Uh, and, you know, there's the, the who that might want to do it and, and on and on and on. So the, the pandemic has rewritten so many rules about how music is conducted and the business of music that, uh, you know, we just we haven't seen, you know, I don't think we're even halfway there yet. Wow. Um, I, I know that a lot of artists are doing virtual concerts now and as a way to raise a little bit of money and raise them some revenue. But but going forward, I, I, I don't know if that is the way to go for fans. Yes, they'll be safe watching from the comfort of their own home watching a virtual concert, but, but it's not the same, is it? No, no, it's not. There is nothing that can replace the feeling of you and 17,000 other people losing their minds uh, to a band playing some great music. Yeah. Um, it will come back. It's just going to be gradual. It's not going to be, you know, one day the calendar is going to flip and we're going to go, okay, it's all safe to go to concerts anymore. No, that's, that's not, the, that not the situation. It will be a gradual thing. Now, the good news is that it will happen, but there will be a period of transition which will go on for most of 2021. Now, um, do you see, even when things get, and I don't like to use the term back to normal because nobody knows what the new normal is going to be, but when, whenever we get back to some sort of reasonable calm, how is that? Do you still see uh, masks, not necessarily social distancing, but people wearing masks and more hand sanitizers and all the safety precautions being part of concerts going forward when people start attending shows again? I think so. Have you ever been to a concert in, in Asia, uh, especially Japan? I mean, that's that's been the way things have been for forever. Um, there is a, a greater, there always has been a greater sense of hygiene in places like Tokyo. Um, you know, just look at their COVID-19 uh, infection rates, and that's it's lower in such a large city simply because people have been used to you know, uh, sanitizing everything and wearing face masks and so on. I, I think that we are going to go that that way, at least for the 
the near term, the medium term, we may end up, you know, eventually going back to the way things used to be. But uh, it's going to be a long time before I leave the house without a mask. I just, you know, it's it's funny because I'm watching TV and I see all these people uh, in, in TV shows, like dramas and comedies, uh, gathering together without having a mask on. And I, I kind of like shiver. It's like, ooh, why don't you have a mask on? Mm-hmm. I understand that. Uh, so, best guess, uh, because you're talking, you know, 2021, kind of, will, will, will we be okay, uh, and this is quite a ways out, in 2022, for example, are we going to be okay as far as attending concerts? The most, the pessimistic people who work in the music industry say that summer 2022 will be fine. Right, but again, we—it's not just Canada that needs to be vaccinated; it's the entire planet. So until we get the COVID nineteen infection, infections under control, uh, and we we see it in the numbers, and we are you know aren't afraid to get on an airplane anymore, um, you know that's that's what we're going to have to wait for. And I think by twenty twenty two, summer twenty twenty two seems to be a fairly safe bet from from this vantage point. And you would hope that, of course, by that point, the border would be open, and it's probably a good thing, because I was talking with somebody a while ago about, you know, next year, for example, just for the sake of argument, if there was a show and the border was open and a band was playing in the States, and they crossed the border into Canada, and they're playing, for example, here in Hamilton, and the day of the show, we find out that a roadie has contracted COVID. Now you have to cancel the show. That opens up a whole storm of another thing when you got to refund tickets, and that caused a lot of problems this past year, as we know. It sure does, and nobody wants to start refunding tickets all over again. Um, and the border is a big deal because you have bands and crews coming, you know, going in both directions, and then you have fans going back and forth. Um, you know, there there are a number of venues in in, in Buffalo and in the uh, Niagara region of New York where you know so many people from. Uh, Hamilton, Toronto, and the Niagara region can cross the border to see those gigs, and vice versa. So many people come into Toronto to see a show at Scotiabank or at or at Cops, and it's it's uh, yeah, we we've it'll be a while. I, I keep coming back to that phrase, but it'll it'll be a while before we're comfortable enough to be able to go back to the way things were, at least more or less. Before we wrap up, Alan, I know we'd be remiss if we didn't, uh, and there was unfortunately uh, another long list of artists who are no longer with us, but uh, boy, we were all, uh, and I don't know how many people knew that he was sick in advance, but uh, it's almost a year now, January 7th of this past year, when we found out about the death of Neil Peart. Um, I, that one, it came, and that was like a thunderbolt. There were so many people that were stunned by that news, uh, unfortunately, about Neil. Yeah, he was the most private member of Rush, and he was living in the U.S. And uh, I, I talked to some people close to to Rush and to Neil, and you know, they were all sworn to secrecy. They knew for a very long time, months and months and months, that he was ill. But they, out of respect to him, kept it quiet, and uh, <laughs> to the point where when, when I got that call on January the 7th, I was like, what? What do you mean he was sick? That that can't be. What are you talking about? And uh, yeah, it was it was uh, it was it was such a shock and surprise. Same thing almost with Eddie Van Halen because they had been denying his illness for such a long time. Every time we heard that he was on death's door, we would see him show up at a concert or a car dealership, and he was smiling and you know 
uh, hugging people and, and giving out autographs. Oh, okay, well, Eddie's maybe doing all right. And then suddenly, you know, he, he ends up dying, and it turns out that he had a stroke. It turns out that he had lung cancer. It turns out that he had cancer metastasized to his brain as well as from his throat. And he was a very, very sick man. So, uh, you know, people, people will respect your wishes if you tell them just to keep quiet. You know, and and that's the other part is we lose our, our, our musical heroes. You know, you're looking at the list, you know, Kenny Rogers and Helen Reddy and Charlie Pride and Stevie uh, uh, Spencer Davis uh, from the Stevie Winwood uh, group. And, you know, and again, when it comes down to uh, Alan, as we know, they're, they're just people. They're just like us. But a lot of times we don't find out what they're going through. And that's that's when the shock comes. Yeah, and here's a big issue. This is not going to get better. It is only going to get worse. Let's look at some of the people who are in their 70s that we are going to see leave us in the next 10 years. Ozzy Osbourne, yep. Bob Dylan, Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, Paul Simon, Carol King, Mick Jagger, Brian Wilson, Keith Richards. Well, not Keith Richards. He's never going to die. <laughs> yeah. Joni, Joni Mitchell, Jimmy Page, Robert Plant, Roger Daltrey, um, Brian May, Pete Townsend, Roger Waters, David Gilmore, Eric Clapton, Neil Young, Van Morrison, Don Henley, Billy Joel, Bruce Springsteen. I mean, these people are, are in their 70s. Yep. And uh, a lot of them in the early part of their lives uh, really abuse their bodies. And that will, you know, at, at some point you're going to have to, somebody's going to have to pay for that. Well, we'll see what happens as far as the uh, musical uh, industry in uh, 2021. Kind of going to watch to see who the first, uh, I don't want to say guinea pig, it's a bad term, but who, who the first real concert tour is, where it happens. I know uh, there are shows booked in the States for some acts in like April or May of next year. We'll see what happens and we'll see what people do as far as uh, uh, staying healthy when they uh, go to shows, if indeed that is the case. Alan, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Have a great new year and I hope we'll talk to you soon. You bet. See you later. Alan Cross, there you have it. A look at uh, the musical industry in 2021. He's predicting by summer 2022, things will be back to whatever normalcy there is. That seems like such a long time. Time flies by, but 2022? And I guess this is a rhetorical question, which I'll throw out before we take the break. I'll let you ponder this one. If concerts are okay to go to in the next little while, would you feel safe going to a concert? Don't know about that, huh? I have to ponder that. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Joining us for the next few minutes to talk about, uh, well, let's call it what it was, an ugly year in 2020. As the president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, Rocco Rossi joins us. Rocco, first of all, thank you. And uh, belatedly, uh, Buona Natale. Grazie tante, Ted. And anche a lei and uh, your family. And Felice Nuovo. Well, let's hope that the uh, new year is good. Uh, if, fair to say, Rocco, that there is no uh, sugarcoating this. It has been a brutal year for retailers. Horrendous. And the, the second uh, lockdown coming when it does, um, you know, when it came on Boxing, uh, Boxing Day, Boxing Week, uh, that's not a week like any other in the retail calendar. It's traditionally a week where uh, people would have made sales that are worth uh, many months uh, of normal sales. And so uh, 
very, very hard uh, indeed. So from your standpoint, and I know that sometimes it's like you're preaching to the choir and sometimes we get the impression that the government doesn't listen. We don't want to get into a whole government situation here. What would you and your organization like to have uh, the government do when it comes to shutting down businesses, locking down businesses? What would the time frame, in a best case scenario, what would the best uh, time have been? Look, uh, best case scenario is that we would have been investing far more in testing, tracking, and tracing so that we can be far more surgical with our lockdown. All of us want great public health. Make no mistake. We understand everyone's got to do their part, and good public health uh, leads to good long-term economic health. But when you don't have good data, you can't make good decisions. What you end up making are blunt instrument decisions because, and I feel for the public health officers, they see the thing getting out of control. They can't track 100%. They can't even track 50% of the cases. So they say, we're going to lock everything down to try to be as safe as, uh, as possible. So more testing. We totally agree with the premier who's saying, hey, we need to be testing everybody coming into the airports. Yeah, but we also need to be testing people at daycare. We need to be testing people in, you know, sort of in the food processing plants, all kinds of other areas where you had high instances of transmission. The more you're able to track, the more the lockdown becomes the lockdown of individuals and not entire sectors of the economy. Rocco, I, I think I know the answer to this question, but at any point during this pandemic when they were talking about shutting down and lockdowns and all that stuff, did anybody from the government reach out to you and your organization to maybe discuss best practices and what you would like to see? We've been in constant conversation. You know, I, I, I want to be totally fair to the government and really all political parties and at all levels, the municipal, the provincial and the federal there has been a remarkable amount of conversation and there has been movement on so many areas, but we really, you know, on this testing front was, was really something we'd like to see much, much more of. We also now want to see us up our game in getting these vaccines out because um, that's going to be crucial. And quite frankly, we're lagging on a per capita basis jurisdictions like Israel, like the UK, like the United States. Um, and that really is the ultimate light at the end of the tunnel. And we need to do a better job. It was interesting uh, reading uh, that apparently, even before the holiday season that we're now almost out of, it was apparent that many small businesses would not survive the crisis. Uh, in Ontario, 55% of small businesses shrank between June and November. That's 55% over half. That's frightening, Rocco. Yeah, and, and surveying our members, uh, 25% of our members with 20 or fewer employees believe they would not survive a second lockdown. Um, so it's not just about reduction. Thousands of businesses have already shuttered permanently. Uh, and we expect to see many, many more before uh, the end of this. We were pleased to see that the government put forward outright grants of ten to twenty thousand dollars in these new small business grants, because quite frankly, a lot of the money 
that has come particularly from the provincial government has been deferring certain taxes, certain fees. Uh, and those deferrals are just basically like loans. They may be zero interest loans, but they're loans. And as, as businesses have been accumulating these loans and deferred costs at a time when they haven't been making anywhere near the dollars that they made uh, before the pandemic, at a certain point they say, it's, it's just not worth it, and they shut their doors permanently. And uh, what uh, type of a ripple effect? Obviously, we know what that will have on the economy if they uh, close the doors and, uh, you know, they, they shutter their, their restaurant, for example, and then the staff uh, don't have jobs as well. Ripple effect of this uh, going forward is not going to be uh, uh, too nice to watch either. No, and it's not just about uh, the economy of buying and selling goods and services. Our small local businesses are our street culture. They are uh, the people that local charities go to uh, for help. They're the, they're the people who sponsor uh, our local Little League uh, sports. And so it, it has a massive ripple effect that goes well beyond uh, the economy and really into the very fabric of our community, which is also the reason why for all of us who, who, who are, depending on our financial circumstances, can, this is the time to buy local. This is the time to do that extra click uh, and find that, that local shop that can get you the service. You don't have to buy everything from Amazon. Uh, and small business, local business has never needed our business more than today. You know, when you talk about uh, businesses, uh, you know, doing their their business a lot of it online there's an education process too because a lot of people haven't been used to buying stuff online they can't get to the store there's almost a whole education process for uh, some people to have to learn how to shop online for sure and and uh again to be fair and and to give some shout outs to various levels of government digital main street major investment by the province, by municipalities, by the federal government. Um, there have been a lot of programs uh, in this area, but it underscores, Ted, the, the digital divide. We've, we've seen that those who've been able to make that transition from a business perspective have done far better than those who were not able to do it. And there are many parts of the province where they still basically essentially have dial-up service or dial-up speeds. Uh, and you can't compete in the modern economy without broadband. So it's very good to see the investments that the province, the feds have, have put out there on this front. And it's not just, again, about business. As we talk about our kids learning at school, try doing that on dial-up. You need broadband for education, training, retraining. You also need broadband for virtual health care, you know, as we've been trying to avoid having sending people to hospitals, mm -hmm. and lining up there and trying to do as much uh, online again that digital divide is being exposed. Our guest is uh, Rocco Rossi, the president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, talking about uh, retailing in uh, 2021. Uh, when you look at some of the... Uh 
businesses, Rocco, that, uh, if you will, and I'm tired of hearing and saying this word, everybody's pivoted this year into something new, right. uh, but the businesses that have pivoted and have kind of uh, had a chance to reinvent themselves, fair to say that things like leisure wear, sports wear, lounge wear, home improvements, they seem to be some of the areas that have really caught on to what they should be doing? Oh, you've absolutely seen it. And I mean, people know the names, the kind of the Lululemons of the world. Uh, and on home repairs, you know, when you're when your home, when your place of residence becomes not just that, but your place of business, your place of schooling, et cetera, uh, the amount of uh, of DIY, the amount of upgrades that have been happening um, have helped uh, the Home Depots of, uh, of the world, the Canadian tires of the world. Um, so, again, you know, the larger ones have done have done quite well. It's, it's very important to be supporting those those small local businesses as well that make up our main streets. Now, on, on the other uh, side of things, because I know that, uh, you know, my wife and I have had conversations about going shopping and I you know said to her, OK, what happens if I need a pair of pants? And she said, you don't. I said, OK, just work with me here. If I needed to get a pair of pants right now, aside from buying it online, I, I, I'd be at a luck because obviously you would like to try on a pair of pants to see if they fit. So would apparel like that, maybe buying shoes, maybe be some of the places that may be suffering a little more in uh, 2021? Well, they're definitely, they've definitely been suffering and they've felt kind of hard done by because many of the big box stores, which are allowed to stay open because they have groceries, which are essential services, also happen to have an aisle where you can pick up a pair of pants or shoes or other items. And, uh, and that has struck uh, many of our smaller members as incredibly uh, unfair. You know, our, our, our point is all of COVID has been unfair. And uh, this is, this is one more element, but uh, I don't want to, I don't want to pit the small against the, against the large because we want to get product into people's, um, into people's hands wherever possible. But let's make that extra effort either to get it curbside, delivered, or online. You know, you actually bring up a very good point because it seems that there's been a lot of frustration when I talk to small business owners that saying we can't compete with the big box stores because they sell food. And uh, it they're saying, and this uh, I don't think this is the case, but they're insinuating that the level the playing field is not level because the government is allowing big box stores to open, and I guess legally because they're selling food. How do businesses, small businesses, fight that battle? It's been very hard. I mean, you have jurisdictions like uh, Manitoba, which basically required that the big boxes cordon off anything but the grocery side of their business. Um, it's very complicated where where aisles are intermingled and uh, and so and so difficult. It 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 is it is good that um, that the governments have disproportionately been trying to get help um, to the smaller. Um, to the smaller businesses who've really been hit the hardest uh, through this. The larger ones have more financial capacity, more ability uh, to quote unquote pivot. But even there you've seen, uh, you've seen the impact. I mean, you have, you know, you had chains like Le Chateau on the retail apparel side uh, that have filed for bankruptcy and shut down. So 
this is, there's there's plenty of pain going around in this. So what uh, what would you and, and you kind of uh, talked about this already, but uh, for people who are getting upset because they see their neighbors and friends and some of them uh, will be losing their jobs, unfortunately, in the next little while and until this uh, lockdown is lifted, what would you like to see uh, people uh, generally do? And I think you've kind of touched upon this already. You're talking support local, right? Buy local wherever possible. Another thing I want every one of your listeners to be doing, if they haven't already downloaded the COVID alert app, do it today. This helps our frontline uh, healthcare workers track and trace cases so that we can keep, uh, keep this issue contained. Yes, the vaccines are coming, but it's still months away and we need to, uh, we need to take control of this and be managing the crisis, not simply reacting to it. We can do that. And Keep talking to your local politicians, encouraging them to continue to do what they can to help small businesses, because it's kind of like restarting a fire. It's always easier to start one if there are embers glowing still. And that that's the same for the economy. We don't want the permanent scarring of hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of businesses going bankrupt and trying to start again de novo. You want to keep as many people with their head above water so that we can uh, recover that much faster at the end of this. Rocco Rossi, President and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Uh, let me wish you um, a happy new year in 2021. Let's hope it's a lot to better. I, I know that it, it will get better, just a matter of when with a vaccine or what have you. But uh, uh, a lot of people have been suffering. This pandemic has affected all of us. And let's hope uh, the next time we chat on the air, we'll be talking. Uh, we'll be talking business, but hopefully uh, a happier business story. So thank you very much for joining us. All the best. Amen. Stay positive and test negative. Absolutely. Great advice from Rocco Rossi. There you have it. Buy local. And I'm glad he brought up that point about uh, the big box stores because they seem to have been uh, talked about a lot. Uh, people saying, why are they allowed to open and the small businesses aren't allowed to open? And he, and he kind of explained that. Is it a, a level playing field? Perhaps not. But right now, that's the way that things are going. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. He is the radio voice of the Buffalo Bills. Have a talk to him in a while. John Murphy joins us on CHML. Murph, first of all, belatedly, a Merry Christmas and an early Happy New Year to you. Well, thank you. Same to you. Yeah, Happy Holidays to everyone. So uh, let's off the top. How much fun has this year been for you? Oh, it's been great. It's been great. You know, and the Bills have a nice win streak going now they had a pretty good win streak earlier on they've only lost three times all year the only missing link to be honest with you is the fact that them there have been no fans at the home games and there have been a couple of times when the bills uh, finish off a home game with a spectacular game this year when i walk out of there and it's empty and i think man the fans would have loved this no one would have enjoyed this this victory over the the 14 or over the uh the um pittsburgh steelers or over the uh, Chargers, over Seattle, no one would have enjoyed this better 
than the Buffalo fans, and they're not able to be there, and that's been really tough. But overall, it's been spectacular. Well, that's the thing that, that jumps out at me is we watch the home games in Buffalo, and the crowd really, obviously 80,000 people get into it. I really feel, and I understand, Murph, that every team has gone through this. Some teams are allowing some fans in the building. But the Buffalo fans, if ever was a team that deserved fans to be at a home game, it is the Buffalo Bills. Now, let's talk. We had the story last week on CHML Sports uh, that uh, Governor Mary Ocomo is now talking with the health professionals about possibly having home games attended by about 6,000 fans. Now, the Bills have at least one home game coming up, if not more. Uh, How close have you heard uh, is that to coming to fruition? I think fairly close. I mean, they have to make an announcement soon. And by soon, I mean today or tomorrow, because um, quite frankly, there's a lot to do in order to make that happen, including testing for the 6,700 fans who'd be admitted, uh, testing prior to their arrival, and protocols to set up uh, post-game tests, you know, uh, maybe the day or two after. All of that has to be put in place, I think, and uh, uh, they won't. now we're talking about a week and a half away uh, from the uh, potential first home playoff game. And you're right, there might be two. So it, it, it's going to require, if it happens, it's going to require a lot of work. It's going to require a lot of uh, diligence on both the part of the Bills and local officials. But I think uh, uh, fans are so happy to get a chance to attend that uh, they'll probably get it done. But it has to. they have to make the announcement soon, I would think. When we uh, first heard uh, the signing of Coach Sean McDermott in Buffalo, uh, he was talking about changing the culture. And a lot of coaches, when they get hired, they talk about doing that. But he clearly has done that, especially over the last couple of years, as, as things are being built slowly. What is it about that coach and that coaching staff uh, that has filtered down to this team, which is having a whole lot of fun on the field? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. He is, he's been maybe the central figure in the resurgence of the Bills. Over the last few years, he's got, uh, I think, first of all, he's got great perspective. You know, he knows uh, how important it is and how important other things are, and he keeps everything in perspective. And I think that translates to his relations with his players. You know, they know that the coach has their back and that he won't ask them to do something unreasonable. And I think his sense of perspective uh, is maybe his top priority. He's got a tremendous work ethic. Nobody works harder than he and his coaching staff, and that filters down to the players, too. I think he is, uh, I do think he's a player's coach, but maybe not in the old time sense. You know, he's a player's coach in that he thinks about how his decisions and how his statements might impact his players, and he doesn't do anything to tarnish his relationship with players, but he is demanding. You know, he expects a lot. He expects an awful lot from these players and, and ask, not afraid to ask them for an awful lot. And all of that works in Sean McDermott's favor. I think he has tremendous backing of the ownership group here, too. I think, I know he does, and they've done virtually everything uh, he has needed to, from building a new weight room and workout complex to uh, letting him hire a, a complete and full staff. And uh, they've, of course, extended his contract this past year. But he, he was, at, at the time of his hire, back in 2017, January of 2017, he was the perfect choice. We may not have known it then, but he certainly has is, uh, is demonstrated that he was the right guy at the time, and he remains the right guy. And I think uh, the future is bright as long as Sean McDermott and his general manager, Brandon Bean, are in charge of the Buffalo Bills. I was going to uh, say our guest on uh, CHML is the play-by-play radio voice for the Buffalo Bills, John Murphy, uh, talking about the Bills. And, you know, 
Murph, there's one thing that, that jumps out at me when I watch this team, and they are exciting. I mean, Josh Allen, you know, it's funny. A couple of years ago, in this very newsroom, I was touting Josh Allen. Watch this kid from Wyoming, and a lot of people said I didn't know what I was talking about, so whatever. But Josh Allen is playing so well, and when I watch him now, I get this sense of calm. Even if they're down toward the end of the game, he kind of comes on the field, and he exudes this confidence, doesn't he, that it says... I got this? Yeah, he does. I think he's having an MVP caliber season, and I think the, the um, you know, the odds-on pick for the MVP was probably Kansas City quarterback, uh, Kansas City's um, quarterback or Green Bay's quarterback. But Josh's numbers stack up against them. His performance is stacked up against them. And, and you're right. Uh, Josh has shown himself to be totally in command of this Buffalo offense. It's his third year in this offense uh, orchestrated by the offensive coordinator, Brian Dable, and he's got complete command of it and, and confidence in it in his ability and what his teammates around him can do. Now, make no mistake, the Bills have, have added a lot to uh, the offensive approach in the last couple of years, building around Josh Allen, but Allen's steady, uh, consistent, constant development has been the biggest reason why they uh, are so far ahead of the game now. And, and I really think he has made improvements in his game. He throws the ball better. He's much more accurate now than he used to be. He remains a tremendous athlete and can escape the pass rush. But his biggest steps forward this year and really throughout his three years with the Bills have been the mental steps, you know, the discipline, uh, uh, the decision-making. And, and that comes with experience, and he's getting plenty of it, and it, and it shows. It works to the Bills' benefit. Let's talk about number 14 for a moment, uh, shall we, Stephon Diggs. When they made the trade, we kind of thought, oh, uh, what is uh, what is this all about? But but you talk about a team that came out on top of a trade. This guy has been unbelievable. And a prime example of this, he doesn't have, as we know, this flat-out burner speed, but we saw the touchdown pass in New England when he came across the middle, made the catch, and then just kind of put it into second gear and just open it up. This guy is amazing. He is. He is. And we knew he was good. The Bills knew he was good when they uh, gave up a first-round draft pick to get Stephon Diggs, but he has certainly exceeded their expectations. He is the number one receiver in the NFL in terms of numbers now. He certainly is among the top three receivers in the league right now. And what impresses me most about him, and the questions about Stefan Diggs when the Bills acquired him back in March, not questions about his ability, but about his approach, you know. He, he expressed unhappiness with the approach in Minnesota. He wasn't happy with his quarterback up there, Kirk Cousins, uh, Kirk Cousins, and he let people know it. He's been nothing but a tremendous teammate since he arrived on the scene here in Buffalo. He's shown leadership. Uh, you can see him oftentimes, you know, puts his arm around his quarterback, Josh Allen, and tells him what he saw, and uh, here's what Josh saw, and they compare notes. Uh, the one thing I really like about him is he plays with an edge, you know, and he, he plays with a little bit of the diva personality that many teams get from their wide receivers, and the, you probably need that from a wide receiver. Just this past Monday night against New England, there was a, a great sequence where uh, young defensive back J.C. Jackson of mm -hmm. New England was sort of uh, getting a little bit handsy with him, you know, a little bit too much contact. Uh, and Stefan lectured the young receiver. They caught it on the ABC uh, telecast. You know, he was waving his finger in his face. Later in the game, the touchdown catch you talked about, uh, he uh, he beat Jackson pretty badly, coming across the middle, uh, raced his way to the end zone, and all the way I mean, <laughs> before he gets to the end zone, he, he's basically taunting the young kid, saying, I told you, I told you not to get your hands on me. You know, but he plays with that edge. He plays with a certain edge and aggressiveness that, that I think benefits his team. He's been a... He's been like the number one trade for sure. Maybe the top, uh, yeah, the top offseason acquisition in the NFL this year and one of the great trades in Bill's history. He is, uh, 
he's certainly uh, exceeded their expectations. John, just before we wrap up, one of the things that jumps out at me, and, and we talk about the Bills' offense and the defense, but they're having so much fun. When you see somebody like uh, the offensive lineman, John Feliciano, yeah. sometimes, um, <laughs> in the game in New England, whoever got the touchdown was in the end zone. Feliciano comes up, and he tackles him. And yeah. I, I believe a couple of weeks ago, another Buffalo Bill receiver <laughs> got a touchdown. Feliciano picked him up and held him like a baby. You talk yeah, about right. an offensive lineman having a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, yeah. Feliciano has been fun. He rocked the Cole Beasley like a baby a couple of weeks ago after he scored a touchdown. Told him he was going to do it in the week uh, before, in the practice week before. And then uh, the other night he picked up Lee Smith, who was a big man, and basically dropped him because there was no uh, there were no Patriots around to tackle him. <laughs> He's been great. He's been great. He's, he, you know, he was hurt and missed most of the preseason portion of practice and came out about six weeks into the season, and he's been a great addition as far as his performance, but mostly in his approach. And I think the fun that you see them having is, again, we're back to the uh, impact of uh, of Sean McDermott. I mean, it's a reflection of the way McDermott wants them to play, the way he, he wants them to enjoy what they're doing, and it's really been fun to watch. Let's talk about, before we wrap up, let's talk about the defense. When they are on, John, they are absolutely uh, almost frightening uh, the way that they rally to the football. They do, um, and the defense has been on since uh, really since the bye week, which came uh, the third week of November. And they played uh, four or five games since then, and they've been sensational. They've uh, basically lopped about nine points off their average points allowed per game. Uh, teams don't run against them the way they were before the bye week, uh, and they get consistent pass rush. Now, they don't get a ton of sacks, but I think uh, we're all learning that sacks don't necessarily measure the effectiveness of your pass rush. They have had a little bit of a change in approach in the way they attack opposing quarterbacks. They they do put on more pressure than they did maybe the first half of the season, but it's worked. they got a great scheme led by Leslie Frazier, and they have really good players, and they're solid all over the place. They got Matt Milano, who came back to the lineup a couple of weeks ago, who was a Pro Bowl caliber uh, outside linebacker, and he played Monday night like he is right back to where he was. And, uh, he's getting healthy at the right time going into the playoffs. So, uh, the resurgent defense has been a big part of Buffalo's recent win streak, no question. And I love uh, Jerry Hughes. I know that there have been some questions about him in the past, but he's one of the leaders of that defense, isn't he? He is, and he's one of the guys I was thinking about. Not a ton of sacks. Never will get, you know, maybe never will get to double-digit sacks, but he's a force. He's a, he's a pass rush force. He's always getting pressure on opposing quarterbacks, regardless of whether he finishes them off with a sack. He certainly puts pressure on and uh, forces them to hurry up and forces them to make plays before they're ready. So, yeah, I think he is the one who signifies the kind of fast rush they get. John, just before uh, we wrap up, a uh, couple more for you. Uh, first of all, the game Sunday at home against Miami. Uh, might the Bills rest Josh Allen and Stephon Diggs and some of the starters knowing that basically that they have things sewn up, or are they still playing for one or maybe more playoff berths and they kind of got to see how the flow of the game goes? Yeah, it's an interesting question, and Coach McDermott isn't offering any clues on how he's going to play it. Um, they could, you know, there is something to play for. I mean, if they if they win, or if other things happen, they could wind up with the second seed right behind Kansas City, the second seed in the AFC, and that's worth another potential home game in the playoffs, and, and worth maybe uh, the fact that uh, you don't have to go to Kansas City until the final game, the AFC Championship game. There's some benefit to that. Uh, there's also a, a great benefit to resting players and making sure that uh, injured players, players who are nicked up a little bit, are healthy and ready to go when the playoffs begin. There's a sharpness uh, consideration. You know, Do you want to take a week off and put a couple of weeks between games? Are you confident your team will bounce back and be ready to play? 
All of these are interesting questions. Uh, McDermott has the final say. And, you know, I was thinking about it today. McDermott has not really, in this year in particular, made any moves that I would question. And so I'm going to, if I were the Bills and if I were their fans, I'd put myself in Sean McDermott's hands. You know, what does he think is best for his team? He knows him better than any of us. If he thinks certain players need rest or a week off, I, I'm, I'm willing to trust him. I'm not going to second guess him. It's a tough call. There are things to play for. And there are reasons to give people a rest, and uh, I, I'll leave it up to Sean McDermott to make the det- determination how to play it. Well, that game is coming up on Sunday. We've got New Year's Eve uh, tomorrow night. I'm curious, John, how are you and the family going to be spending New Year's Eve? Because we can't do much this year. No, I was going to say, what do you have in mind? <laughs> Seriously, Not- there isn't much going on. We'll be home and have dinner and cook a nice dinner, and maybe I don't. I, I'm a, I probably won't be up at midnight, to tell you the truth. I haven't been up at midnight for a while. (laughs) We'll see what happens. Listen, John, there are a lot of fans here in southern Ontario that are pulling for the Bills. I'm kind of calling them the sexy team going into the playoffs because we want to see them do a long playoff run. The fans really deserve it, and the fans deserve a chance to be in the stadium to watch. So we'll see what happens on Sunday and see what happens in the playoffs. Enjoy the rest of the run because it has been a fun year for you, and we wish you all the best, a happy new year, and, and and uh, thanks for joining us. Great. Thanks, Dad. Happy New Year to you and your listeners. Thank All you. right. That's uh, John Murphy, the play-by-play voice of the radio of the uh, Buffalo Bills. Boy, that team's exciting. They really are. And you watch them. When, when Feliciano picks up a player and, and holds him like a baby and rocks him, I mean, how can you not break into laughter? So much enjoyment. Um, you know, if they get hot at the right time them going against Kansas City and I'm way ahead of it obviously but going against Kansas City Chiefs in the in the AFC final wow that'd be a lot of fun you're listening to the Scott Thompson show podcast on 900 CHML we uh, head to the uh, the end of uh, the Scott Thompson show for this year and uh, it has been um, well I don't like to use the term um, unprecedented I just did but it has been an unprecedented year. It's been a year that um, has opened up a lot of eyes. It's been a year that uh, has caused, I would hope, a lot of us to kind of sit back and reflect and think a little bit about what's important. And, uh, and well, I know that uh, it seems uh, that you have been uh, on the... Uh, on the technical side of things, uh, through all this pandemic stuff, we've had news conferences with the premier ad nauseum every day almost, and the prime minister, and we've had COVID-19, which has basically taken over our lives. And there is, and, and I would say that this is not an unfair statement or untrue, uh, that COVID-19 has taken over everybody's life. There's not one person who was not affected by COVID-19 and the pandemic. No, truly a global humanity. Yeah, it's something that has touched every single facet of human existence. Everything from our our inner psychological lives yep. to our physical health to the economy to our society to our entertainment. Every single thing has been affected by by you know something that came right out of left field for a lot of people. And yet you think back to about this time last year because the experts were all saying and it was prophetic or mm-hmm. whatever New Year's Eve and I remember talking to one of the infectious disease experts on the health and wellness show. It was either Zane Chagla from St. Joe's or Ian Prira or uh, Dale Kalina from Joe Brandt and they had said that the doctors in the know were getting heads up about this pandemic and COVID-19. It started on New Year's Eve overseas. And they were getting the heads up saying, you might want to keep an eye on this because something is going to happen. 
And then it kind of uh, got bigger and it got bigger and it got bigger without getting at the political thing, of course, in the U.S. They kind of poo-pooed it and look what happened there. But think back to where we were this time last year versus now. About, it would have been a year and a week ago, I remember I was... If you can imagine it, I was at a bar with a few friends. And we're sure. having drinks, and I had uh, and I had one friend who was saying, oh, "I have I've heard a little bit. It doesn't sound like that big of a deal to me." And I was saying, "Ah, uh, I don't know. I don't know what we're hearing." And, and look at it, yeah. And as it turns out, um, you know, we have learned to. Um I, I really don't want to use this term anymore. In Do 20- I have to get the censor button ready, no, Ted? Because no, no, I've been riding that no, thing no, 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 day. <laughs> we have learned to pivot. We, we've learned to do things differently. We have learned that the... New, a finger quote here that the new normal <laughs> will not be an unprecedented normal in unprecedented going forward <laughs> and this is what alan cross and i talked about is when we finally for example a part of our lives if we feel you know we want to get back to shows when they start getting back are you going to feel comfortable going to a concert are you going to want to wear a mask going to a concert would you rather stay at home there's there's a whole bunch of stuff and the other part of this uh, is, of course, as uh, people I would hope I know, uh, listen, even on occasion, to the Health and Wellness Show. And I know that the big topic going into the Health and Wellness Show next year will be mental health and its effect because of COVID-19. That COVID-19, we may flatten the curve and we may get out of this and we'll get out of this at some point. But people's mental health will continue to suffer and in some cases get worse because of what we've gone through in the last 10 months. And that's scary. Yeah. Now, Ted, uh, I just want to ask you then, what are, for you, some of the positives? What, what, what you know, lemonade can you pull out of this year? Because uh, I know we've talked off air about just the, the connections with family, uh, you know, even when it's tiring to have to do the Zoom call mm-hmm. thing. But yep. it's certainly I think people have reevaluated uh, things. So what are you, some of the positives you've gotten out of this? The positive is that I hope that people have learned what's important in life, that everybody gets caught up in, you know, buying stuff or, you know, I... You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I, I, I'm just hoping, and we're starting to learn, that people realize what's more important. We were talking today in the newsroom about hugging and how I'm one of those people that I miss hugging people because I'm Polish, my wife's Italian, it's European, it's what we do. <laughs> but I miss that. I miss that more than you know, just going up to somebody and how are you and what's going on. So I'm hoping that we have learned to all be a little nicer to each other. That's my go- mm-hmm. I'm I'm getting emotional here. I just want everybody to be nicer next year. Just it doesn't take much to be nice to people. That's what I want everybody to take out of this. Stay safe, stay healthy, do what the experts are telling us to do. And take what we have learned, what's most important, and carry it forward in 2021. That's it. That's lovely. That's all I want to say. So, uh, by the way, program note, Health and Wellness Show will return January 10th with a whole batch of new topics. We're doing a look back uh, this weekend on some of the interviews that have really touched me this year. Next time we talk on the air will be in 2021. Happy New Year, everybody. Stay safe. The Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.